Good morning, everybody. We are in the middle of a series looking at the topic of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. This week we begin a little bit of a turn here. We're going to do a series within a series for the next four weeks starting today on relationships in life. And so if you're new here today, this is a great week to join us. Let's pick up uh, the book of Proverbs on our topic today, which is going to be from chapter 5 of Proverbs. And as always, the scripture reading is on the screen or in the Bible you brought with you today. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he'll be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and the greatness of his folly he will go astray. As a ring of gold and a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. It's God's word this morning. So we've been asking the question, where can wisdom be found? And we've asked that question because, as we've noted, wisdom is just hard to find. And yet, wisdom is crucial to have for your life, isn't it? It's hard to find, but crucial to have. How are you going to decide whom to marry? How do you know which job to take? How are you going to handle that difficult relationship well? Well, to answer those kinds of questions, you need wisdom. You need wisdom more than you just need rules or commandments. In other words, you need life skills. You need life skills. And that's what the Hebrew word for wisdom literally means, the word chokmah. For the Hebrew, the wise life was the most beautifully lived life. It was the most skillfully lived life, the most artfully lived life. And therefore, there's perhaps no more important life skill to handle well. There's no area in which we need wisdom more than the area that we just read from our our scripture reading this morning in the area of sex and sexual expression, which not surprisingly, the Bible addresses provocatively, insightfully, and gloriously, as I hope we'll see. So let's dive this morning into what the book of Proverbs has to show us about sex. Happy Valentine's Day to you all. So, uh, by the way, just as a disclaimer before we get started, a couple of things here. Let me just say that everyone here is likely to be offended at some point or another this morning. All right? So uh, my goal isn't to offend, though, but it's to bring out the Bible's meaning about this important topic. And so at some point, when you like it, just think, well, someone's probably offended by that. And if you're offended, just think, well, somebody else is probably being helped by that. Now, I don't know how that thought's really going to help you today. I just thought maybe that would create some empathy toward me as we get going. And second, there's no way, no way, that just one message about this topic can meet and address every need of your life, every individualized nook and cranny uh, of your situation. But I do think we can make quite a bigger bit of progress 
from the passages that we just read. So uh, enough disclaimers this morning. Let's look at three things Proverbs tells us we should do to handle our sexuality well. We should, number one, be drunk in love. Number two, watch out for pigs in the lap. And finally, plant a foot. What does it all mean? Here we go. Number one. Now, centuries before Jay-Z and the Queen Bee thought up that phrase, and it's by no means an endorsement of them, uh, the Bible quite literally invented the phrase. You got your attention. That was the point. So you, you see here in verse 19, again, the Bible invented this phrase. When you see a young married man is commanded to, as it says, be exhilarated always with her love. And as every commentator and footnoter takes great pains to point out, this word exhilarated should literally be translated as the word intoxicated. And that's what it is in the Hebrew. Again, to paraphrase it, the Bible here is commanding, it's exhorting us to be drunk in love with our spouse. Now, single people, don't check out this morning. There's plenty for you along the way as we go, so no worries. But let's ask, what is this verse telling us? What's this verse showing us? Well, first of all, this verse right here in the Proverbs was not only radically progressive for its day, but it's almost too much for us in our culture today to be able to handle as well. And let me try to show you why. Because this one verse here, this is really the summation of this whole teaching in chapter 5. And this one verse here, it's far more liberal and far more conservative when it comes to sex than just about anything else our culture has to offer us. See, we tend to pull apart what the Bible insists must be held together, but we shouldn't. And, And what I mean by a liberal attitude towards sex is this. The Bible does nothing short of rejoicing in the picture of, the act of, and the frank discussion of sex. Look at verse 5 here. It says this. It says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Now right here, this passage gives us two remarkable images. The first image being the image of the well which is a picture of female sexuality. See, the the well has depth to it. The well has refreshment. That's what it's saying down inside it. And a man must go into the well to experience that. The passage doesn't just give us a picture of male sexuality. Excuse me, a female. It also gives us a picture of male sexuality. And look at the next verse here. It says, Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the street. See, a spring is something out of which what water comes overflows. It's to use the word here, it's dispersed outwardly, you see. And then again, to sort of blow your mind here and try not to think about this too much, the passage goes on to pray a blessing on the man's fountain. All right. Again, don't go there. Some of you already have. I need you back. I need you back. All right. But not only does it pray a blessing on the man's fountain, but then it commands the man to allow his wife's breast to satisfy him when all times, all times, right? And again, just a reminder, this is the Bible we're talking about this morning. And by the way, if you think this is something, this is nothing compared to the Song of Songs when you get there, which at various points, modern translators, especially when it comes to the passages and images about male tusks and jewels, Uh, And what's in the female garden, they can't bring themselves to translate the words. So what's this showing you? Well, not only is it showing you God's absolute celebration, affirmation of mutually satisfactory sexual expression, but it's showing you that it's wise of him to do that. And if it's wise of him to affirm this, then you and I should 
as well. In other words, don't be more conservative than God is about the subject and call that perspective righteous or holy. All right? And yet, and yet, not only is God more liberal than most of us in a way, he's also more conservative than many of us as well because let's not forget, where is all of this exuberant and too hot to handle sexy stuff happening? Well, it's verse 18, it says, rejoice in what? The wife, the wife of your youth. I think we've got a scripture for that here, Proverbs uh, 5.18. Yeah, here we go. And so it's just showing us that God affirmed sexual activity, which isn't just here depicted as intercourse, but any and all forms of sexual pleasure is always and only depicted and affirmed in the context of one man and one woman in marriage for life. In a case you think this is some sort of traditional value speech here, hold on. Uh, historians Ray Siampa, Brian Rosner, in their examination, they're well-respected guys, in their examination of Bible texts, ancient cultures, they tell you just how new and how countercultural verses like this were. And, and you ask why? Well, in ancient cultures, they say, they say men were to take wives, this is what they did, men were to take wives in order to have legal heirs. While sexual pleasure, if it was to be sought at all, would typically be found outside the marriage. See, men in ancient cultures were con- whoa. They're excited about this too. Men in ancient cultures were constantly looking for sexual fulfillment outside the marriage. And you can, of course, see this just from the sheer number of times that men in the book of Proverbs are exhorted to stay away from prostitutes and the adulterous and women who they're not married to. See, people in ancient cultures, they didn't get married primarily for love or for sex, but for stability for political and family ties. But the Proverbs here and the Bible throughout insist that sexual fulfillment ought not to be not separate, but a normal standard part of married life, which, by the way, was absolutely a massive step forward for women then and today in many cultures still around the world. Because this is telling men in a very real way, your wife's not just there to produce you an heir. She's to be loved for who she is, you see. See, people got married primarily for stability then, primarily for emotional and sexual fulfillment today. But the Bible lays it all on the table and says marriage is for both and a story. But you may be saying, okay, all right, you know, it's forward then. It still sounds, you know, sort of patriarchal to me today. You know, the wife's breasts are for her husband. There's a, there's a blessing on the fountain, you know. What about a blessing on the well, you know, what about that? Listen, if that's you, just move on over to Song of Songs, where the woman is affirmed in her position as the sexual aggressor, if you will, the constant initiator in her relationship with her husband, again, all in the Bible. So, what's this telling us? Well, Proverbs 5 is showing us that Christianity, sex, isn't for the prudish or for the selfish. Not for the prudish on one hand or for the selfish on the other. Therefore, Proverbs 5, it ought to dispel three myths when it comes to sex and how we use it today. And let's go through these together. All right, myth number one here that Proverbs 5 really tries to, to blow out of the room. Number one, the first myth is that sex is dirty. Sex is dirty. Again, Christianity, to quote one commentator I read about this, said, is the most body positive faith system in the world. 
Think about it. It says that not only that God became a person with a body, right, with anatomy, the idea of which a billion Muslims still choke on today. But it also says that one day in heaven for all times, you're going to have not a cloud, not a heart, not wings, but you're going to have a body, a real body. And then, then it says that God created sex and gave it as a gift for men and women to explore and enjoy in the context of marriage. In other words, the songs of Barry White and Marvin Gaye have nothing on the Song of Songs or Proverbs 5 for that matter. Myth number two. Myth number two, sex is just an appetite. Proverbs 30 says this, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says what? I have done no wrong. Our modern cultural approach to this topic is basically something along these lines. We say this, you know, I eat when I feel hungry. I have sex when I feel sexy, right? What's that perspective saying? Well, it's saying that sex is just an appetite, that there's nothing inherently moral or immoral about it. And first of all, not only is that perspective small consolation to the spouse who's been cheated on and has their heart broken from it, but that's also not reality. And let me show you why. See, every legitimate need and desire and appetite that you have, like for sleep or for food, it always has to be limited in a sense, be governed in a sense, or you're going to bring destruction on your health. If all you say, man, I just eat when I'm hungry. Listen, you'll eat yourself to death, won't you? You'll sleep so much you'll lose your job, lose your family. See, if no, if our appetites, no appetite is governed or limited, we bring destruction on ourselves. In a sense, therefore, there's no such thing as just an appetite. There is either an appetite wisely used or foolishly used. And by the way, look at where believing this myth, if that's you, what this myth leads you, which is what the proverb shows you. Believing this myth takes you to a place that no one really in their right mind would want to go. It's at the place of a total lack of wonder. When it comes to sex, look here in this, this perspective where it's just an appetite. There's no celebration. There's no joy, is there? No, there's just sort of some sneaking and slurping, right? There's purely anatomical functioning here. See, the Proverbs forcing the grotesqueness of the image that that myth provides you in your face. Third, finally, third myth that we're going to deal with is that sex is just for me just for me. See, people say this today. You hear it all the time, of course. What two consenting adults do with sex is totally up to them, right? Strictly private harms no one. And listen, while sex is never less than consent, of course, it's a whole lot more. And here's why. The Bible never takes the perspective that anything God ever gives you, any gift, is ever strictly for you to use for your own enjoyment outside the context of how it impacts the broader community. You say, well, God, that sounds like a you know, pretty conservative thing to say, typically conservative. Listen, liberals make the same argument when it comes to wealth, don't they? Wealth hoarding. Liberals say your wealth is not just for you, right? You got to consider the environment when it comes to your wealth, how you live. If you keep it all for you, right, while you ignore the world around you, or in other words, if two wealthy people said, what I do with my money, what we do with our money is strictly a private matter. My money, our money is just for us expressing us how we want. Liberals would say what? Those two people are being what? Selfish, right? Yeah. And they'd be right. 
And they'd be right. Look at all the extremes the Bible goes to in order to hit the rich over the head with that message, which by the rest of the world's standards, that's pretty much most, if not all of us today, especially if you got something like a car or, you know, money to have water to spray on your grass. Conservatives say you must consider the impact, right, on the community when it comes to sex, but not really money, because money is just what? My money, our money. Liberals say you must consider the impact on community when it comes to money, but not sex, because a person's sexual expression is their own. But the Bible makes no such distinction, and neither should you. You offended yet? All right. See, every gift God ever gives a person is yes to bless them, to bless that person or people because God is for us, for our joy in life. And yet, every gift God ever gives is to be used in light of its impact on others. And Proverbs is telling you then, if you think that what you do with sex doesn't affect the people and the world around you, you're foolish. You're foolish. You're a fool. Actually, in a way... You as an individual, you are fourth in line when it comes to what sex is for. First, it's for honoring God and acknowledging Him as your creator. Second is to be considered for its impact on the community uh, in minimal terms of the spread of diseases and unwanted pregnancies. And third, the New Testament says that sex is the gift you give your spouse. Which means you're fourth in line. So get in line. Sex just isn't about you. So, teaching here, point number one, don't be prudish or be selfish. Be exhilarated, right? Intoxicated, drunk in love with the person you've sworn to give everything to forever. That's number one. So what else should we do to handle our our sexuality? Well, number two, we should also, Proverbs goes on to say, it's amazing, it says to watch out for pigs in your lap. What does this mean? Well, the reference is taken from chapter 11 here, verse 22. It says, as a ring of gold, a famous verse here, a ring of gold and a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. All right. Now, if you're from a Christian background, of course, you've read this verse a hundred times, or maybe you've been offended by it a hundred times, or maybe if you're new to this verse, you're thinking, man, this is, this is a line I can use to break up with that girl, right? No. <laughs> the answer is none of the above. Don't even try it. So what's it saying? Well, something along these lines. Imagine, if you will, a piece of jewelry, right? Uh, Maybe a custom gold ring, something that that catches your eye, right? That sparkles, it gets your attention. It's beautiful to the point that it's all you can think about, right? It sparkles, it shines, it stands out. Now, what if, what if that thing that you couldn't stop thinking about were attached to a pig, but you were so blinded by the, by the beauty of the ring and the gold in the ring, you pulled it towards you to take it into your lap and hold it. Well, what would happen next? Well, you'd be pulling, right, in an animal that rolls around in its own filth, right? Eats slop, lives in mud. You wouldn't, in other words, just be reaching for a ring. You'd be pulling in and on a pig, And what would happen to you? Well, now that pig's mess would be yours, right, in your lap. You were reaching for the ring, but you pulled a pig into your lap. Now, before you boo the Bible here, all right, especially ladies, let's just consider the context, all right? Because while it is critiquing women in a way, and we'll come back to that, it's first, hear this, first and primarily critiquing men. Remember, context is everything, right? And the context of the book of Proverbs is what? It's a book written to who? 
young men primarily, to teach them and instruct them not to be fools. And what's one of the most foolish things that men do? They overvalue a woman's beauty, right? They don't consider the quality of her character, of her inner life. They only reach for the ring. They only want the beauty, right? And the proverb is saying, are you kidding? Only a fool would do that. I mean, how dumb and blind do you have to be to reach for a gold ring when it's attached to a pig's nose? And the answer is, you have to be as dumb and blind as the average man. <laughs> I mean, you're saying, well, why, why is this aimed in, at me? And why are all the women laughing right now? I, it's because the women already know this about you. See, this proverb shows you that the tendency of men is to overvalue the importance of sex and beauty, and they undervalue a woman's character in her life. And of course, this shows up in all kinds of ways today. Only have time to apply it to one, which is, not surprisingly, the area of pornography, which besides being unbelievably addicting and objectifying of someone's daughter or sister made in the image of God, it's also had over time in our culture, really an unforeseen consequence, which is the absolutely crushing expectations it places on relationships in general and on women in particular. Now, as we get to this, you maybe you're rolling your eyes in your head, you're tuning out, and it sounds like a stereotypical pastor here. All right, if you don't, if you don't want to take it from a pastor, hear it from a superhero. Take it from Robin, that is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, on destruct, how destructive pornography can be. He said this, quote, I think porn gives us unrealistic expectations as to what life is supposed to be and certainly to what love or sex are supposed to be. I've worked in TV and movies most of my life and people say, will say to me, why can't I have it like that or why can't I find a guy like that character in a movie? And the truth is, real life doesn't work like the simplistic fantasies that you see in a Hollywood movie or a porn clip or a commercial for a Carl's Jr. ad. He said real life is so much better than that. Real life is so much more complicated and detailed and nuanced, but you'll miss that if you're too busy comparing your life to these simplistic fantasies. Yeah, it's well put. Or if you won't hear it from a pastor, not even from the superhero, try a couple of scientists. Mark Regnerus, who's actually a UT professor here, he co-wrote Premarital Sex in America. And one of the major myths that his research has uncovered is the unbelievably prevalent myth among specifically religious and church-going teens and 20-somethings a day. And the myth is this. The myth is porn won't affect your relationships. In other words, he's found out that men of all ages abuse it and have abused it. But now... Teens and 20-something males in America are the first group of men in history to believe they can use it and have it not affect their relationships. His research shows that porn doesn't affect just one person's relationship. They found out that porn now, quote, affects virtually everyone's relationships. And it shows how a significant number, here's how, uh, of male porn users experience a diminished desire for the difficulties of real relationships in marriage, and unfortunately, how that has shrunk the marriage pool for women in America. And all women, they argue, are being increasingly pressured, forced to conform their sex behavior to what these men have seen. Basically, their research shows, porn not only keeps people from being married, 
but it works to destroy marriages once people do get married. Why? Because the tendency of men is to overvalue sex and beauty. But on the other hand, this proverb doesn't just critique how men overvalue sex and beauty. It also critiques how women do that as well. After all, what kind of a woman is here in this proverb? It's a, it's a beautiful woman who lacks what? Discretion, yeah. That's a word that means she's got no judgment. She can't tell what's really important in life, and therefore she throws herself, puts all of her value into looking good on the outside while undervaluing her own inner life. And the proverb here says that kind of thinking, ladies, is foolish. It's destructive. And hear this. It'll only attract the kind of man you really don't want in the end. It'll only attract a fool, a fool in your life. But if women in that day abuse beauty like that, then how much more so do we in Western culture do it today? Eating disorders are three to five times higher in industrialized nations than in poor ones. Eating disorders are far higher among college-educated women than non-college-educated women. See, what's this showing us? It's showing us that the closer that we get to the heart of Western civilization, the more pressure is put on women to look and act a certain way. And listen, this goes all the way down, and you ladies know this, it goes all the way down to our dating culture today, right? Even the people that many of us consider dating or marrying. Listen, when a man, for example, when a man walks by 80% of women that he could date or marry, and he screens out that 80% based on looks, then he turns around to the remaining 20% of candidates that are available for him. And he says, oh, I don't want to go out with her. She's too shallow. Oh. <sighs> There's a foul on the play. See, who's being shallow? Yeah. Anne Lamont, in her book, Grace Eventually, sums it all up like this. She says, this culture's pursuit of beauty is a crazy, sick, losing game for women, men, teenagers, and with the need to increase advertising revenues, now for pre-adolescents too. We're starting to see more and more anorexic eight and nine-year-olds. It's a game we cannot win. No matter how much of our time is spent in pursuit of physical beauty, even a great success, the mirror on the wall will always say, Snow White lives. And this is, in fact, a lie. Snow White is a fairy tale. Lies cannot nourish or protect you. Only freedom from fear, freedom from lies can make us beautiful and keep us safe. And she's right. She's right. So how do we get, how can we get the freedom to handle our beauty and sexuality? Well, let me give you one answer in two parts. Number three, plant a foot. In the classic British novel, Jane Eyre, maybe you were forced to read it in high school, or maybe you just love Charlotte Bronte, you may remember, if you've read the book, this, there's this amazing scene, or maybe you've seen the movie, a movie, uh, this amazing scene with Jane and the man she loves, 
Mr. Rochester, right? Jane's fallen in love with Mr. Rochester, but then she's learned that he's married and his mentally ill wife lives in an upper room in his estate. Literally, he's got the crazy lady in the room upstairs, right? This is all classically and tragically British, of course, right? But in the scene, Mr. Rochester has fallen in love with her as well, and now he is urging her to move in with him sleep with him and become his mistress. And his invitation to, to her to move in, to come to bed with him, touches off this storm of emotions in her heart. And this is how she describes it here. Jane is the voice of a narrator. She said, while he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with a crime in resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling and they clamored wildly, oh, comply, it said. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider the recklessness following on despair. Soothe him. Save him. Love him. Tell him you love him and you'll be his. Who in the world cares for you? Or who will be injured by what you do? Oh, this is brilliant. See, she's articulating some of these myths here, right? She's saying, at the moment of temptation... Everything in her is pushing her to give in. Even her conscience is now coming in line to try to justify it. Her own conscience is saying to her, think of how you'd be helping him, right? Think of how you'd be helping him. It would be selfless to sleep with him and comfort him because his own wife can't and won't. Then her reason began to push on her. She's saying, no one's going to be hurt by it, right? Just two consenting adults. Besides, she's saying, no one cares about you or understands how hard you have it. In other words, she's saying, I deserve this. I deserve this. I deserve to have what I want. But then look at how she responds. She says, but still indomitable was the reply. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God sanctioned by man i will hold the principles received by me when i was sane and not mad as i am now laws and principles are not for the time when there is no temptation they are for moments as this when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor stringent are they inviolate they shall be if at my individual convenience i might break them what would be their worth they have a worth So I have always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane, with my veins running fire, my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by. There I plant my foot. She said, I did. I did. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. And you may not get that part and dialogue in the movies, but it's there in the book. In the movies, you get something along the lines of, I couldn't respect myself, right, if I did this. But listen, that's not really ultimately, I hope you saw this, that's not ultimately what she was basing her conviction on. Because if she's only saying, well, I couldn't respect myself, if she's only doing it for self-respect, she could just change the definition of self-respect, right? And let herself off the hook. But second, if the only thing keeping her going was self-respect, well, then she would only be looking inside herself for temptation to resist sexual temptation. But don't you see? She told you. She didn't have any left, right? No no, no walls left. Her conscience is gone. Her reason's gone. Feeling's gone. She feels the fire of desire in her veins for the man. So why didn't she give in? 
because she planted her foot where? In the word of God. The word of God, which she had put inside of herself, not for moments of ease, but for moments of temptation, friends. For when the challenge came, she decided ahead of time how that conversation was really going to end up. She didn't leave it for the moment. She didn't make it a game time decision. And neither should we. A few years ago, I was actually, I was traveling on a plane uh, when two flight attendants approached me. They said, hey, do you see our friend up there? And I looked up and saw this attractive flight attendant there in first class. And they said, listen, she'll take care of you in first class. If you'll go up, she's got a hotel for you when you land. Now, it's out of the blue, literally sitting there and minding my own business, headphones on, all that. Uh, and first I went with my best, you know, I thought was my best move. I said, listen, I, you know, I'm okay. I'm flattered, but I'm happily married. You know, brought out, you know, the Lord of the Rings right there to, to show it. So... They said, as if they hadn't heard it, that's okay, she doesn't mind. I said fairly firmly, I said, no thank you, tell her I'm happily married and that Jesus loves her. (laughs) But to both my surprise, they both began to get upset with me. They began to say stuff like, listen, this isn't an offer you want to say no to, you won't get another chance with someone like this. When someone like that asks you to go, you go. I just said, no thank you. By God's grace, what had I done? See, I planted my foot in the Word of God. And thankfully, I, I have, I had, and I do have a wonderful, amazing wife to go home to. But, but, but what if I hadn't had that, right? Right? What if I was single like Jane, right? Maybe like many of you. Or unhappily married, like Mr. Rochester. Maybe some of you today. What can you really plant the foot of your heart in? Proverbs 30 gives us a hint. It's a beautiful It says, there are three things too amazing for me, four that I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. This is saying that beyond the beauty of an eagle, beyond the power of a serpent, beyond the majesty of a ship on the sea, is the beauty and the majesty and the power of the way that a man truly loves a woman. Hear this. And when you know that the Bible takes verses like this here and also the picture of sexual love presented throughout the Bible and says this verse is but a shadow. It's but a dim hint of what it's going to mean to fall into the arms of Jesus forever. Listen, your heart can be strengthened against whatever comes. When you see that the way of a man with a woman isn't just talking about any way that any man loves any woman here, but it's about the way that Jesus loves his bride, the way he's left his Father in heaven and come to earth and cleave to you, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And that his love for you is beyond anything that nature can picture or words can conjure or your mind can imagine. Listen, you can cry out for that love to hold you and comfort you and take you into the very center of itself. That's what the Trinity's for. If you can do that, you know that you'll be able to handle sexuality and beauty well. Listen, it's too wonderful to understand, but so it is. The way of our great man, our great bridegroom, going to the cross, becoming ugly and unloved for us. We can't even understand it. It's a mystery, but so it is. 
And when you see that you can have it now, right? And when you know that you'll have it for all eternity, that long after planets have crumbled, stars have gone dark, that perfect love and beauty and, yes, pleasure will be yours for eternity. You can handle anything. If you'll plant one foot in God's word now, one foot in God's love in eternity, your sexuality can be a gift and a blessing for you and for others. Anne Lamont, one more time. She said, when Jesus was asked about beauty, he pointed to nature, to the lilies of the field. Behold them, he said, and behold is a special word. Jesus is saying that striving after greater beauty and importance is foolishness. It's ultimately like trying to catch the wind. Lilies don't need to do anything to make themselves more glorious or cherished. Jesus is saying we have much to learn from them. He's saying that we could be aware of, filled with, and saved by the presence of holy beauty rather than worship golden calves. Let's go to him now and get that in Jesus' name.